0: We are going to be in Acts 4 tonight as we look at part 2. I had all this plan. Acts 4 was going to be a one-week study, but you know how that goes. But anytime... i got to tell you all this. Y'all need to make sure that y'all stop me on the way out next time. Anytime I... Have a, serv- have a chapter planned for one week, and then I decide with a page and a half of notes to go, we'll save that for next week, please stop me, because then that turns into seven more pages, and that's not good for y'all. Um, but uh, here we are, and y'all didn't stop me, so we're going to be, uh, I think, having a fun time. I'm just kind of kidding. I really, I always intended on doing a little bit more with Acts 4. Um, God clearly intended on more, so um, I think we're going to have fun tonight. Again, this is a very, very challenging text so, um, just know that I'm one of y'all, when I'm preaching this, I'm also hearing this. So, just uh, understand that, as, uh, as as challenging as this is to hear, it's more, it's just as, maybe more, challenging to preach. Um, but I think we can learn something tonight, and I think we can leave here with a resolve to, as the title says, to be bold, because that's what this chapter is all about. Uh, so, part two of Acts 4, boy, part one was inspiring, but also rather humbling. Uh, as we beheld something pretty glorious and remarkable as the narrative around this temple miracle with that one guy that was lame. Next thing you know it, he's walking again. And then next thing you know it, Peter and John and the gang are preaching. The gospel. Uh, they're telling their Pentecost experience about what God had started and what God was continuing to do. Uh, they began sharing there in the temple about this movement of God that they were a part of, that God had started, and that they were uh, you know, riding the wave, the body of Christ that God had built and founded, uh, the church, of course, of Jesus Christ, um, and, and and really their message all throughout Acts, as we've seen and we'll see tonight especially, their message has been that our movement is founded on Jesus Christ. The guy that y'all killed, remember, he came back to life. Y'all don't believe it, but he's in us. He's alive. You can feel him. You can receive him if you will believe in him, but you killed him. God raised him. He's alive. You should repent because, hey, you don't want to miss out on what God is doing because of, of what he has started. And the message is he can forgive you of your sins. He can deliver you from that lifestyle of sin and emptiness, and he can empower you to live a greater life. Now, we often make a big emphasis about forgiveness and deliver, but Acts really is all about the empowering that God gives his people. And something important in Acts about their preaching and their practice, it may help you understand my own preaching, my tactics between how I address the world and how I often address the church. Uh, their message to the world was, Christ can forgive you and Christ can deliver you from sin. As he did us, he can deliver and forgive you. But their message to the church and their practice as the church emphasized something beyond just forgiveness and deliverance because they had been delivered, they had been forgiven, but now they were empowered and now they had been enlisted to do God's work. It's a very important distinction to make because the church is expected, kind of expected I would think, to have salvation figured out. The church is expected to have forgiveness and deliverance figured out. It still needs to be preached and it still needs to be promoted, obviously, even inside. But we're called to work out our salvation. We're forgiven, we're delivered, but now we've been empowered, so what are we going to do with it? So, in Acts, we find that salvation is worked out through our faithfulness to God's movement, not just to the building, but to what God's movement is doing, to God's movement, and as Christ body. So we're, we're seeing salvation worked out through the lives of the disciples as they were faithful to the movement of God and faithful as members of the body of Christ. And we see plenty of the disciples working their faith out. Um, in Acts 3 and, and into Acts 4, we see them stand witness before the crowds. And then moving into Acts 4, they stand trial before the courts. And last week we read how the disciples were arrested for their faith, threatened by the same courts that crucified Jesus which would startle and pretty back, make anybody back down. But what's outstanding, what's outstanding and almost unbelievable is how we read the disciples, how they boasted of their safety in Christ in spite of their peril before man. Now, it's very clear they were in a perilous situation. They were being threatened and being intimidated and, and, and of course, could have been killed Many of them would be in the future, but in the here and now, they were being threatened with the courts. Uh, The sentencing that Jesus received could very well be theirs. But they stood there before that court, and they boasted of their safety. And Peter makes that powerful confession. Even though he was condemned, ridiculed, and pitied by the world, he said, we have nothing to fear because we are saved before God. And this makes them stand out as legitimate. It makes them stand out as authentic. Even the courts, and that's something that's so overrated in the chapter, even the courts marvel and know that there's nothing they can do to stand against this sort of fearlessness. In Acts 4, 13 and 14, you'll recall that when they beheld the boldness of Peter and John that they saw that these men were, were not anything special, that they had clearly been with Jesus. And it, it says there, they saw the man, the miracle, they saw all that God had done, and they knew they could say nothing. They knew there was nothing they could say or nothing they could do to combat this kind of fearlessness and this kind of power. And this is something that, that needs to be preached more. This is a powerful reminder that we need to remember. And this comes straight from the enemy's mouth, or from his henchman's mouth at least. Straight from the enemy's mouth is a confession that he's all roar and no bite. Here in this text they say, we have nothing on this movement. I know we seem big and bad. I know we're putting on an image that we're going to stop them. But even if we kill them, there's nothing that's going to stop this movement. Now, listen, that is such a big deal as the enemy and his henchmen confess that no amount of devilish tyranny can compete with or counter a fearless church. Oh, if we would remember this. Satan tells on himself in this text, don't give him that power back. He confesses that he has none over us when we walk in this fearlessness of Christ's resurrection and pr- promise and power. Now the disciples, they can't hear the devil's musings. And of course, he and his men, they flex and they attempt to appear undeterred and determined as ever to stop them as, uh, to, and, and try to stop the movement. So he warns them, and it's such a toothless warning. They warn them, you better stop preaching in Jesus' name or else. But they know. There's nothing they can do. Now we make light of it, but these were the same people that crucified Jesus. Of course, they could inflict harm. They could very much kill them and they would soon after this start that persecution. But it seemed the disciples had taken the words of Jesus to heart. It seems that they were instilled with and galvanized with a sense of otherworldly courage before these threats. Remember Jesus, of course, he trained them for this. Back in Luke 12, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. I mean, after they've killed you, what, what's left for them to do to you? I mean, come on, Jesus, this is, is that supposed to be a joke? You know, do not fear those that can kill the body. And then he, le- and then he leans into the bigger picture. But I will warn you of whom to fear. Now, he says, if y'all want to be afraid, and I'm not endorsing fear, but if you want to be afraid, you should fear him who after he is killed, has the authority to cast you into hell? I tell you, fear him. He says you shouldn't fear people that can only kill the body. When there's a God who has authority over the soul, and that makes Jesus say, and that makes people think, well, what you know, what 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 does that mean? But then Jesus completely changes the subject. He says, "Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God?" I mean, what Jesus, you just told us that we shouldn't be afraid. And then he told us that we should be afraid of God. But then now you're saying that sparrows are valuable to God. Now what does that mean? But then he closes this section like this: Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not; you are of more value than the sparrows or than many sparrows. So what is Jesus' conclusion of that whole thing? If you needed to be afraid of someone, it's God. But God says, "Do not fear." You're valuable to me. And of course, Jesus is the process of God showing us how valuable we are to him and giving us a standing before him that means we don't have to be afraid, but we can trust him. And of course, if he is in charge of even those that attempt to kill the body, then we have nothing to be afraid of. Now, I know that might be some gymnastics going on there to get to that point, but clearly the disciples figured it out because they were not afraid of these that might could kill the body but could do nothing to their souls as their souls were secure in Christ and nothing could take them out of God's salvation. So they show how unafraid they are in their response. In Acts four twenty, they say, or Peter in the gang says, we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. Before that, he said, for it, you judge whether it's right to listen to you or to God, but we are going to take God's side on this. Now, much to do is often made about their defiance to the godless and tyrannical government. And of course, we should take cues from their detachment to the temporal, especially in that they had to break ties with their nationality and with their traditions. The Jews were a very nationalistic people. They were a people who were greatly concerned about preserving and protecting their land and their traditions. We saw the religious leaders justify killing Jesus for those very reasons. The disciples had been right there with the religious leaders, but Jesus freed them from it and detach them from this world. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that later. But the emphasis here shouldn't be so much about how they denied authorities as, in, as much as it was that they denied themselves. Because what were they doing by saying, hey, we're not going to listen to you? They were saying, we're going to listen to God, and if that means we die, then we're okay with that. Again, this, is, this shouldn't be a big deal about, oh, they stood up to the courts. They stood up to themselves. They were standing up to their own will and saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, at this point, a warning is all that they get. And they are free to return to wherever they want to go. They could leave the country if they wanted to, which is what we would have done, right? Uh, they, They could have taken a few days off from preaching, which is what a normal person would have done. But this is why what comes next is almost too good for us to even get a witness or a glimpse of. They return to their base. And of course... You can imagine how relieved and thankful the church was that they were safe, and I'm sure at least a few raised an eyebrow um, that these men came right back in the room and instead of saying, "Hey, we're going to take some time off," instead of saying, instead of saying, "Hey, let's come up with a better strategy so that we don't get arrested next time," and better yet, that we don't get you know threatened to be killed. Can we come up with a safer plan? I'm sure they raised some eyebrows when their first response or their first act was to lead the church in prayer, especially with the prayer they begin to pray. And I I know I I, I might have overhyped this this morning, but I mean this. This might be the most important prayer, the most powerful prayer that mere mortals have ever prayed. And if we would just so much as mimic it, oh, what a difference that God can make in our lives. I want you to listen how Acts four twenty three and 24 begins as they begin this prayer. They were not worried over the course decisions. They were resting in God's and listened to how they begin this prayer. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, or literally sovereign Lord. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So right off the bat, they give us a, they give us kind of a signal as they allude to God's sovereignty as they allude to God being the maker and the creator and the sustainer of heaven and earth and all that's in it. They appeal to their sovereign lord and let me tell you what this shows and we're going to see this as it, we're going to see it played out as they continue to pray. Here's what they're signaling. They weren't worried about preserving their stories, but they were focused on participating in God's. They weren't trying to minimize the risk, but they were trying to maximize their role in God's story. With their appeal to God's sovereignty, that God, I know from our perspective, things are out of control down here. I mean, they killed. Jesus, yeah, he's back to life, but, you know, that still was, couldn't have been you know, the best, best, best case scenario. They kill Jesus. We know that's part of your plan. Then they're trying to kill us. But notice the confidence that they come at this with. Hey, God, you are in control. And they're praying this as much for those that are listening, as much for us that are reading as they were for themselves. Because they, they clearly had this already figured out in their own faith. They were not worried about trying to preserve their stories, but their focus and their goal was participating in God's story, maximizing their role. They weren't worried about minimizing their risk. Do you see the difference? It's kind of hard to avoid, isn't it? See, we so often worry about prolonging and protecting, but they knew this wasn't their story to begin with. They were fortunate to be part of it, and as long as God would let them, they wanted to make the most of it. Now, don't you see how this line of thinking has crept into our churches and our theology, where we think it's more about preserving and more about minimizing the risk. Don't you see that it doesn't just come from believing in a small God, but it comes from personalizing God. It comes from flipping the script and turning the tables. Oh, if we could just get a dose of this in our churches. We would pray less bless and protect prayers and we'd pray more whatever it takes prayers which is where this is going you might want to buckle up for what's about to come so once again acts 24 acts 424 they raised their voice to God with one accord. Lord, you are God. You made heaven. You made the earth and the sea and all that is in them. By the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage? The people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then they call back to the attempts to stop Jesus. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, beginning of his life and end of his life, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. So we've seen this movie before, Jesus, what they're trying to do to us, they try to do to Jesus. They gathered together to try to kill him, and of course they did. But what, what good did that do? Verse 28, to do, this is so big, highlight, circle, underscore, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determine before to do. So what had the disciples realized by watching Jesus go through what he went through and seeing how God worked that out? How God intended it and how God redeemed that story? They knew that God was in control. They remind themselves that this is God's plan and God's will and they double down their commitment to his story being greater than their story. And now comes the big question, the big request. The greatest prayer request the church has ever made. And before we soak up all that they asked for, just consider the first part of verse 29. So they lead up to this prayer. Lord, you're in control. You see that people are trying to plot things against your people. And then they make that comment about how God's in control of it. But verse 29, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants. And and you know what the rest says, but pretend you don't. What would we pray if we were them? And I'm not saying that there's a wrong answer. And I'm not saying that their answer is the only right answer. But their answer is the only one that the Bible records. We don't have to really wonder what we would pray. We start prayers like this all the time, don't we? Lord, behold their threats and grant your servants... Lord, behold these threats. Bless, protect, and spare us. I I know this because I've prayed this. So remove them and raise up someone better in their place to take back our city and take back our nation. I mean, we should probably know that that's what we would pray because we pray those prayers, don't we? And again, nothing wrong with those prayers. It's just not what they pray. Again, I don't mean to make light of it, but I want this next part to really register with us and I want it to jar us like it should and I want it to cause us to rethink our postures and rethink our prayer lives. Lord, Lord look on their threats <laughs> and grant your servants that with all boldness that we may speak your word. God, I don't know what you're going, what's gonna happen with those people. I mean, they're crazy. They wanna kill us. Why would they wanna kill us? We're your people. God, they have lost control. They have lost their minds. Lord, I guess maybe look at their threats. I mean, you know, we're not happy about it, but we can't do anything about them. But here's what we can do. We can commit to serve you with as much boldness as you will give us. I mean, does that register with y'all like it does me? Lord, yeah, they're trying to kill us, and we don't really like that, but we can't really change that. Well, yeah, you can change it. You can pray for things to change. They don't. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but they didn't. But what, what, what is their focus? Lord, give us boldness that we may speak your word. Stretch out your hand, heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, I think this is a, maybe a sign that God was happy with their prayer. Y'all figure that out maybe if it if, if doesn't make sense for me. When they prayed, the place was shaken together, where they were assembled was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So all I know is when they prayed, God answered, and God said, I like that prayer. I mean, can I get an amen? I'm glad somebody had the boldness to pray something that normal people wouldn't pray. I mean, I've heard a lot of this kind of prayer, and I mean, I'm not, you know, hey, God hears this, and he loves you, and he understands that we're scared sometimes. God says, I've heard those same prayers a lot, but man, this one's new. Now, is it wrong to pray that other stuff? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that when they could have went with little, predictable, easy prayers, they went with big, bold, extravagant prayers. They clearly signaled that they trusted in God to be sovereign and knew he would remain sovereign. And this might get me in a little trouble, but they weren't like us. They didn't... <laughs> They didn't have the illusion of choice to distract them. They had a clear vision of God's sovereignty to hold them together. So they quickly address that and get right to what they knew they could control or the choice they knew was theirs to make. How will we respond to this crisis? Will we wait or will we work? They pray for boldness so that they would not back down or lay down. Isn't that amazing? We don't pray prayers like that, do we? We pray for protection and change and for avoidance. Look at these guys. I mean, where do we start? It's rather humbling to read this, isn't it? It is. Anybody that says this doesn't humble them, I mean, you know, maybe I should support you monthly, but I don't know about that. This is really kind of incredible. Incredible. Knowing that we would pray something like, Lord, thank you for saving us. Please, please, please let this never happen again. And oh, by the way, we're going to take a few weeks off, God, because we've been bold enough to last a while. So can we just kind of not be back on the mission field for a little while? Because we don't want to go back to court. I mean, who wants to go to court? Who wants to go to jail? Who wants to die? I mean, you know. But I don't know what, what these guys were thinking. I think we do, don't we? Here's what we know about this story. Big prayers lead to a big church. Not, not size, but an impact. Big prayers leads to a big church. And that's what Acts is all about. A big. I mean, you could not avoid it, and you could not miss it, and man, were they making some noise. A big church. You know why they were a big church? Because they prayed big prayers. Now, if they wanted to pray little prayers and hide in their little corner of the world, they could have, and they would have been a little church, and they would have died. Before the first century ever came to an end. And we wouldn't be here. Bold prayers lead to bold print impacts. And that's what they made. A, a prayer is a reflection, this prayer is a reflection of the heart of the church, why it didn't break, why it didn't balk or wasn't afraid of Israel's or Rome's attempt to destroy it as much as they tried. What if, come on, what if we prayed prayers like this? For real. What if our worldviews was like theirs? For just a day, how would it change us? I got to tell you, this prayer and this passage alone changed the way I see the world about 10 years ago. It saved me, and has saved me from so much grief and so much heartache, and I know my nature would have to deal with if I did not follow suit with the disciples, and I still struggle with this. I think we've talked enough about God's sovereignty lately to let that speak for itself, but can you even, where do you start with this prayer? There, there are two things going on here. They've got complete confidence that God was in control of our world. Complete confidence. I mean, I don't know how else you can say that other, how much you can word that. I mean, here they are. God, everybody wants to kill us. You do something with that, but we don't know what you're going to do with it. But we're not going to wait on you to do something about it. Lord, we have a total desire to see you control our hearts. And we don't want to surrender control of our hearts to them. And we'd love for you to make it easier on us. Come on, that's obvious. But we're not going to wait for them to change for, for you for, to ask you to change our hearts we have a total desire to see you control our hearts and remain control of our hearts that's the big emphasis They're, they knew that that was the ball that was in their court see we often try so hard to grab the ball or the wheel that belongs to God we neglect the one that we are responsible to possess and drive down the court if that makes sense if we will remain at that posture in that place we will continue to make bold and big impacts like the early church did. If we are willing to do whatever it takes, even if it means denying ourselves, denouncing ourselves in order to pronounce and proclaim what God has done and what God is doing. Do we have this kind of faith? Do we pray these kind of prayers? If we would, we would be graced with the same kind of results that they were. And as we alluded to earlier, It would make a much easier time for us discerning between what we should and shouldn't prioritize and focus on as a church. We wouldn't get involved in things that really aren't benefiting us at our mission. Which brings us to our conclusion as we see the church continue about its mission. Now the next portion that ends this chapter that we're going to close with gives us a view of what boldness looks like beyond the mission field in the church. So we've seen what boldness looks like on the mission field. I mean, it's no holds bar. We're going to go and preach the gospel. Even if they try to kill us, let them kill us. They can't kill the soul. We're going to preach for the kingdom of God. You're in control, God. So all to you, we're out here for you. But the closing of Acts 4 shows us that their prayer for boldness was not just about their bravery on the battlefield of ministry, but it was also about their bravery in building up this church body against their tendencies and their nature. You see, boldness isn't all about doing risky things pertaining to safety and our well-being, but it's also about doing risky things pertaining to our wills as to what we want and what God wants. In this passage, we're going to see how boldness is defined in ways that we might not expect or think initially. And again, we should split chapter 4 in half. The first half was about boldness before the enemy. The last part is about boldness within the community. So let's, preview, let's get a preview of what boldness looks like within the church community and like most of what we've covered tonight, it might surprise you. 432, The multitude of those who believed were in one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. I mean, you know that, that had to have been the result of a radical movement of God because nobody's that selfless. That's supposed to be funny, but that's also true. Nobody's that selfless, but these people are. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus as in their lives were a reflection of the resurrection power and great grace was upon everybody. That God's grace was moving between and amongst all the people and they, were, they saw each other through the eyes of grace. Nor was there anyone who, among them who lacked for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. I mean, what kind of, what kind of movement is this? They laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed or shared each, as, each to each as anyone had a need. And then there's Joseph, or Jose's who, Jose, who also was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levi of the country of Cyprus, which more on that next week, but that's a big deal. Having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have this imagery of what boldness looks like in the faith community, what boldness looks like in church. We see an emphasis on bold unity, bold generosity, and bold sacrifice. And we balk at some of the things that are in this text because they're so far into our practice as Christians, isn't it? Here's what I think we can learn from this. The disciples had been prepped for this, type, this kind of detached pathology and their separation from the Israeli establishment. And it's clear that they were committed to keeping the church from becoming another version of what they had gotten free from, the religious community of, of Israel. These tactics were very bold when it came to a religious community, as in the extent they were taking to make sure that their community just wasn't another religious community. Here's what I mean. Religions and religious communities are by nature tribal, territorial, and attached to the temporary. It's bold to break from these traditions. And church, if we want to be bold, we must resist and repent of The tendencies that we have to become tribal, territorial, and obsessed with the temporary. So if I can be so bold, here are three things that I pull from this passage that we need to pay attention to. We need to say no to becoming insider or click-focused, which is should have done that a long time ago, right? But this is the modern church's Achilles heel. We need to work diligently to prevent and reverse these trends. If there's ways to prevent them, do everything. But if there's ways to reverse them and combat them and undo them, don't stop at anything to do that. Because what do we see in this scripture? They were together, and as many came in, they all were a part of the family. There was no insider, you know, click. There was no, well, you know what, you don't fit in, or go somewhere else, or hey, we're all alike. So it was this constant focus on being a community where everybody. Had a place. There were no tribes. They were one people. Now that's very important. In the Old Testament there were tribes that people didn't associate with people outside of their tribe. But Acts 4 verse 32 says they were of one soul and one heart. Very different from the Old Testament Israel that was split up 12 ways or more. Number two, we need to be committed to using resources to reach people, not people to protect resources. This is a whole other sermon, but just the the one minute version of it. Church is for people, not the other way around. So our resources are to reach people. We don't use people to protect the resources because we don't see anything about a building or resources in this chapter as being important. The importance is people. What can we do to reach people? That's the only thing that's sacred. Church is for people. Jesus said Sabbath is for people, not the other way around. So the church is for people so how can we make sure that remains a priority we're not going to be territorial this is just stuff this is just temporary things as a means to an end to reach people for the gospel number three we need to refuse to worship anybody but jesus and refuse to build towards anything but his kingdom you see these people were willing to cash in their land and give it to the church because they were building a kingdom they weren't building their own kingdoms they were building god's kingdom They weren't worried about who was in charge of the government or which party was running or which party was corrupt because they knew that they were building toward the party of Jesus Christ that had everything in control. Refused to worship anybody but Jesus and refused to build toward anybody or anything but his kingdom. If we operated from this place, we would make bold waves in our church, in our world. And if we focus on this kind of boldness here, we will naturally be as bold as ever out there. Because we'll be prepared for it and used to it. I gotta be honest, this is more convicting than the stuff about not being afraid of the bad guys. Because this step's on our toes. This is on our home turf, isn't it? What we find from this chapter is a commitment to be bold. They weren't afraid of the enemy and they weren't gonna let the church become its own enemy. Boldness has to fight both battles on both, fr- battles on both fronts. Boldness has to, has to say, hey, we're not afraid of you. And boldness has to look itself in the mirror and say, what is in the way of us being the church that we've been called to be? Because it's not just about that battle, it's about this battle. See how important it is to pray bold prayers? I mean, this is probably two or three sermons in one, but I think we get the picture, don't we? Will you commit to pray these kind of big and bold, extravagant prayers with me? Will you strive to be bold with me? To pray bold and to be bold out there and also in here? To be bold as the movement of God, as the body of Christ, as the people of God? You know, bold is radical. Bold is strange. I remember reading this chapter as a teenager thinking, who would sell their stuff? And give it to the church. As an American, this is foreign to me. As a person, this is foreign to me. Who would be so bold to not worry about what's going on in the world and just focus on serving God? All this is so radical. It's strange, it's weird, but it's revolutionary, isn't it? And all I know is this, as a preacher who has to, come to, has to face uncomfortable texts and preach uncomfortable texts... All I know is that this is what changed the world before. And we love to sit in rooms and try to figure out what would fix the world, what would fix the church, but I know what would because it's worked before. In summary, bold leaves the impossible in God's hands. You know what the impossible is? The politics of it all, the who's in charge of it all, well, they're going to stop me and they're going to hurt me and they're out to get me. We can't stop. We can't change that stuff. I mean, we can't. We, you know, we think we can and we vote and all that stuff, but listen, we can't change anything. So what did they do with the impossible? They left it in God's hands and they didn't talk about it anymore. And We talk about it all the time. They said, God, you got to deal with that. I don't know what to do with it. We don't like it, but you're in control. So we're done talking about it. So what can we talk about? Bold leaves the impossible in God's hands and then it prays for God to work everything that's possible through our hands. So it's hard to get through the first thing. But it might be even harder to get through this last part because this is the part that makes us maybe even more uncomfortable. But it's so, there's such a breakthrough that's waiting to happen. If we'll pray bold prayers. If we'll ask God to work everything that's possible through our hands and leave the stuff that's impossible in his hands. So will you commit as a Christian to be bold out there and be bold in here bold changed the world once bold might just change it again let me just warn you if you start praying bold prayers you will do things that you would not expect you to do you will let go of things that you would not ever expect to let go of people will think you are crazy they will think you are radicalized they will think you are extreme but you know what God will say you are? You're bold. Let me pray for you. Father, this, this is a big, big chapter, big conversation. We read of these men and, and women who were so sold out for your kingdom. I got to think that they were praying prayers that they didn't necessarily feel good the best about praying but they knew they had no other choice and come on they had tasted purpose they had tasted something that was bigger than what this world could offer them and they couldn't look back so father we live in a world that is upside down and a world that scares us and worries us and drives us crazy but god we're going to mimic these folks behold their threats and behold the corruption, and behold the lies, and behold the hypocrisy, and behold all that's wrong about the people that are in control. But as for me in this church, give us boldness that we might be the church. Give us boldness to not not lose sight of what's in our hands and what is possible. Lord, help us to make... Sure, that our churches are vehicles for carrying the gospel and places for people of every tribe and every tongue and every walk of life to come together and find Jesus and find a home and help us to build your kingdom and only your kingdom. Lord, forgive us of our tribal and territorial and temporary obsession. Free us from that stuff and help us to be bold. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for your mercy because we need it in this area especially. We pray for your grace to empower us to not just pray bold things, but to be bold every day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.